what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of ohioverse it's me nick your host with greg as always how you doing greg what's going on guys all right, we got a lot to talk about. Um, not much football. We're going to talk about the combine a little bit. Talk about the uh, disappointing loss in the Big Ten Championship. Talk a little bit of Blue Jackets, a little bit of uh, soccer. And then, uh, you know, in the middle there, we'll talk about some of the baseball rules that we talked about last episode. Just trying to get Greg's opinion on how he's felt they've worked out so far now that we're like probably two, two and a half weeks into uh, spring training here. But let's go ahead and start out with the combine. If you guys didn't get a chance to watch it, I think a, a big standout um, for me was C.J. Stroud, but I wanted to get Greg's opinion on on C.J. Stroud and if he felt he did enough to maybe be considered as the number one uh, quarterback off the board or if he still should be considered maybe number two or number three. Uh, I definitely think he he upped his, his stock quite a bit. Um you know, one scout said he was one of the best combines he's ever seen by a quarterback. Um, some of his throws that can be tricky and not for Strat, everything was clean. His arm was uh, effortlessly big and he measured well, pretty much perfect. And, you know, that comes from a, a seasoned scout. I think, um, you know, uh, another one, I think uh, Jeremiah or Daniel Jeremiah, I'm sorry, broadcast partner of Rich Eisen. Uh, said that Stroud uh, could not script a better day for himself throwing the football. I mean, I think that he he did everything he needed to do, and I think that you know he's definitely number one or number two. It, it's not a question. Um, so he he upped his chances of going number one, and and possibly you know, depending on how these draft teams kind of go back and forth with you know trading up trading down and stuff like that um he could go off the board i think mel kuyper said he could go off the board at number two um in a projected trade between chicago bears who swapped picks with i believe it's the texans and then trading uh the houston pick uh, to indianapolis who would then select Stroud. so a lot of a lot of ifs ands or buts going on in there but um he could possibly be be QB one uh, when it comes down to it. It's just a matter of what team wants uh, to make sure that he's still there when they pick. Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about quarterback prospects, everybody talks about size. So for size is a big thing. Um, you know, he's I think six three, about like two hundred and twenty pounds or something like that. So he definitely has like the the body type, the the build to be an NFL quarterback, if that's what people are looking for. Uh, I think the question about him having a a big arm or not was the question. I think he, I don't think he has as big as a, as an arm as like prospects like maybe Will Levis, but I do think he can put the ball down the field accurately. I think that's the the most important thing. I think a lot of people just see, you know, wow, he can throw it out of this. A guy can throw it out of the stadium, but can they can they put the ball down the field accurately? And I think he showed that his footwork is really um, impressive, and. For me, like when I look at a quarterback, I look at a lot of the greats and they were able to stay kind of even, you know what I mean? They weren't too down on themselves and they weren't too high on themselves. They've just been able to stay pretty even killed. And he seems like a guy who's been that for the majority of his career at Ohio State. Um, at some times, you know, you could see the youth where he kind of looked a little dumbfounded with what was going on in the field. But I think he's learned from that. And he can grow from that um, over time. But he's always stayed pretty even killed. He's never gotten too hot or too cold. And I think he showed that in the combine, like with the your comment about one guy saying effortless. You know what I mean? It just when you're watching him do his throws, it, it just felt like he was it, it wasn't hard for him. It was just second nature. And, you know, he has a really good understanding of of his footwork and his own body on, on making those throws. But 
Was there anybody else to you that I don't know if you got to watch any of the videos or anything or if you obviously you probably read some stuff on it, but I just didn't know if there's anybody else who like stood out to you um, from the combine from Ohio State specifically. I mean, there were a lot. I mean, I, I majority watched kind of the running backs um, and the wide receivers as much as mm-hmm. I, I could, um, you know, while I, I had the opportunity. But the Buckeyes did pretty good. Uh, out of the 11 measurable categories that prospects are tested on in the combine, Ohio, Ohio State players uh, topped the charts in seven of them. So that's pretty darn good. Uh, so, uh, DeWanda Jones measured in as the largest player in the combine in all five weight categories, height at six foot eight and uh, one, quarter, or one quarter inches, weight at 374, and hand width at 11 almost you know, 12 inches uh, wingspan 36 um, you know full wingspan arm length and everything like that 87 uh, Josh Jackson Smith Enigma ran the fastest time of all participants in both the 20 yard shuffle at 3.93 seconds and the three cone drill in 6.5 seconds um, most of the Ohio State combine participants uh, did like partial workouts I think Whipler uh, was the only Buckeye to participate in every drill out there. And then like people like Cameron Brown and Ronnie Hickman didn't work out at all. So, um, you know, Paris Johnson was another one that uh, he did fantastic. Um, so he's probably arguably the most important physical measurement for an offensive tackle is your, you know, your wingspan and, and Paris Johnson, uh, you know, hit that category. So I think a lot of good things for those guys. And I'm looking forward to seeing what can they, they can do in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I agree. I think uh, I think this was a big combine for not only C.J. Stroud, but that offensive line. I think those guys were able to show, like you said, their size, their power. Um, and even uh, Dewan Jones, he ran like a 5-3-40 time or something like that. But for a guy who's like 6'8", almost 400 pounds, like that's, you know, he, he was moving. So I think... You know, they were able to show that not only were they big and strong, but they were athletic. I think when you talk about uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba, he's not a guy who's going to blow the top off a defense with his like top end speed, but his footwork is phenomenal. Um, And I think that showed in the three cone drill and uh, the I think the 20 yard drill. So like his footwork is what's going to set him apart from the rest of his class. I still think he's the best wide receiver in this class. And if anybody's drafted over him, I think that team is going to feel a little dumb when it comes to the season time. But like I said, I think this offensive line uh, showcased why they were probably the best offensive line uh, in the league this past year. And then when you talk about Zach Harrison, I think Zach Harrison's another guy that he didn't do like any drills, I don't think. Um, so he didn't really move the needle too much for his draft stock. But I'm hoping when it comes to the pro day, you know, he can uh, he can showcase some of his stuff because as of right now, I think he sits probably like a sixth or seventh round pick, kind of like a guy being a more developmental guy who can be a rotational piece, but maybe he can show teams that that he's improved uh, during the offseason. He could kind of become a guy who maybe one day could become a regular starter, but he didn't really do much for him. That was kind of a disappointment um, in my book because I think that was a guy that really needed to showcase something for, for, for him to be able to move up. But, yeah, offensively, I think we'll see – I think we'll see at least four of those guys um, on the offensive side of the ball that come out of the first round. if And then, you know, a couple more that will come in the second and third round there. So be interesting. Definitely interesting. Let's move on to another Ohio State um, sports 
team, I guess, maybe. We'll say that's probably the right word. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about women's basketball. And we talked about, you know, the the season that they had last episode and just how phenomenal it was and, you know, how they were getting one of their, you know, senior guards back from injury. And and they had had this big comeback in, in the quarterfinal game. Or this, I should say that, yeah, the semifinal game, I should say, sorry, um, in the Big Ten Championship tournament and in the big 10 tournament championship game they just went down big again and they couldn't you know factor a big comeback again losing i think was it like a hundred and so 105 to like 77 or something yeah something close to that just tough at halftime they were down like 61 to 27 i believe so it's just like just a just a tough loss i think in and it it really is weird I guess because it didn't seem like that was their MO all season. Um, maybe they just got caught not vibing well with each other, but I, I don't know. I'm interested on on your take on, you know, how bad does this blowout loss look? And then after this loss, does this change your outlook on how you think they'll do in the big dance? I don't want to say that this loss was expected, but when you erase a 24 point deficit against the number one seed, Indiana, and complete the largest ever comeback in Big Ten women's basketball tournament history. Um, that effort might have contributed to some tired legs and some inability to provide, you know, much of a, of a resistance against, you know, Caitlin Clark and, and, and the rest of that Hawkeye team. Um, you know, you, you look at kind of their percentage, shot percentages when it uh, goes to that game uh, versus the game before, you know, the OSU just shot 34.8 from the field compared to the Hawkeyes, 62%, um, and the 16 forced turnovers, um, and then got out-rebounded 45 to 29, I believe. So I think they were just tired. Um, you know, they went up against Juggernaut in Indiana, and they just didn't have – you know, regular season games, you have a little bit of rest in between in games, but even these tournament games, it, it really tests a team's ability uh, to be able to, to play consistently. And, and I think that that's just what happened to them. Um, you know, they're still going to be ranked probably three, two, or three or two in the NCAA tournament um, in their bracket. So um, I think still think that they can at least make it to the Sweet 16, if not the Elite Eight. They're that good of a team. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that is tough. Like you, you win a, you come back from being down that much, and you win that game, and that, and as much energy that they put into that, and maybe the the feeling afterwards almost feels like you won the championship. You know what I mean? Because of how how hard you played, how big of a comeback that was um, against the number one team in the Big Ten. You know, so you're, you're talking about maybe maybe like a, a, you know mentally and physically they were just drained and trying to go into that game and and put together a win against a really good team uh, is tough. So hopefully when they get into the tournament, you know, they know what that feels like and uh, they can give them ch- themselves a chance to, to make it pretty far. I, I do agree with you. I think this is a, at least a lock for a sweet 16 team and, and potentially maybe even a lead eight. And if those, you know, those two guards are playing at their best, I don't know. Uh, they might be able to get all the way. We'll see, but at least at least Sweet Sixteen. I think that that should yeah. be their that should be their goal. Um, and then we'll kind of anything after that will be a cherry on top of the cake there. So for sure. Alrighty, let's know how you guys feel about that game, though. Um, I don't know if you know for everybody who got to watch it. You know, let us know how you felt about it. 
I got to watch a little bit of it, watch, you know, listen to a little bit of it on the radio. So I got a couple different feels from <laughs> from that game. But uh, definitely let us know how you guys felt about it. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, get Quigs. Quigs. Oh, my gosh. Goodness gracious. Combine the word quick and Greg. All right. Woo. <laughs> let's go ahead and get Greg's quick opinion um, on the new rule changes and how it's affected uh, spring training ball so far and, you know, what his outlook is is on the season going forward. I know they'll definitely probably dive into this a little bit more in depth, I believe next Tuesday or Wednesday when their first episode comes out of uh, on deck for the season. But how how have you felt about the new rules is, rules, is, rules and how they've been implemented into baseball so far? Um, well, I'll start off with a shift, and I believe that the uh, my Boston Red Sox were able to, uh, you know, like I said before, work an augmented shift um, and and rotate uh, the right fielder over. And basically, you still had the two players on the right side and two players on the left side of second base in the infield. And then you had an augmented shift in the outfield. Um, and I believe Joey Gallo was the recipient of that particular augmented shift. And uh, it worked out in their favor. So, um, like I said, it's just a matter of, of figuring out what they need to do. And, and when you, you know, nothing says you can't shift in the outfield. So those are part of the rules. It's the infield shift. Um, so if you move those players around, I mean, and, and that center fielder was basically right on the line. So it, it, it it's it's perfect, and I knew that they could do a workaround, and so uh, you know, moving forward, that's what you'll see. And the, the Red Sox were kind of just the, the first to implement it, and uh, you'll see it more in the future. As far as the uh, game clocks and the larger bases, that has led to shorter games and more stolen bases. So. Um, in 2022 and 2021, spring training games were respectively in excess of about three hours. And so far in 2023, spring training games have been about two hours and 39 minutes. So that's, you know, 20 minutes off the clock. Um, so that that definitely has, has sped stuff up. And you've already seen some of the, the pitch count, um, pitch clock, uh, let's say errors, but the, they've caused the strikeout of the... Um, also with the Red Sox and I believe the Astros, but I might be wrong on that one, but um, it, the bases were loaded in the bottom of the ninth and the batter time clock uh, did what he needed to, or did you know, over exceeded his time. And then it was a considered a strikeout. And then obviously spring training guns go to a tie because um, they don't go into extra innings on that. So, um, so that, that's a thing. Um, we'll see how, much it gets tweaked moving forward in the regular season of baseball. Uh, obviously, teams are just getting used to that. And it's weird. I've read in a little article where all these World Baseball Classic guys are out there playing the World Baseball Classic with 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 the older rules or the regular rules. And they're just going to have to kind of come back from the World Baseball Classic and unlearn some of the new rules that they they learned, but then we're told to unlearn for the classic and now, now they got to relay it's it's it'll be interesting um when it comes to that and I, I definitely see some games coming down over the course of the season the whole season that some games coming down to pitch clock and and, and time clock uh, issues 
Now, as far as the stolen bases, uh, teams are averaging 1.08 steal attempts per game thus far. That's nearly a 40% increase from the 0.77 attempts per game in spring training in 2022. Uh, the success rate is also up. Last year, teams uh, succeeded in 73% of their attempts, and the uh, rate has gone up to 78 So that's the uh, success rate has only gone up a little bit, but the attempts have gone up. And a lot of stuff that I've read has really said that um, that's from a fan's perspective. It's a a thing that the really the the fans want to see. It makes the the games more interesting when people try to steal bases, and it, it makes it so that um, you know. The, the run game was kind of I want to say it was it was out of baseball but it it, it it definitely taken its its toll and its effect on on you know and so this is put that run game in in a, a offensive category um, a little higher and, and usable um, by coaches now so um, again I still don't like it but my opinion means squat when it comes to anything but this podcast. So uh, more stolen bases, uh, more attempts, um, funner games to watch. I think that really comes down to what it is. So we'll again see what happens in their regular season. But uh, so far, it seems to be successful in all the categories, these new world changes in uh, spring training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you give people, I guess, more things to watch at a quicker rate then that just keeps people interested longer you know what i mean i think i think baseball and as it's i guess to its core hasn't really changed you know you still have a pitcher pitching a ball you still have a hitter hitting a ball you still have defense you know fielding catching pop flies throwing the ball so like at a core it's still baseball but you're just giving people more things to watch at a quicker rate and i think that's just where we are as a society at this point. They need to see things kind of, kind of moving. Um, you see that within TV or other sports. Um, you know, they they don't want to sit around and and wait a long time for something to happen. And you know, baseball was a, baseball was, and I think still will be a very m- mental game. Um, so there was lots of things that went into, um, you know, in between each pitch or hit or whatever it may be. There's lots of things that went into that before that happened. Now they're just like, you got 15 seconds, dude, throw the ball, hit the ball, figure it out. And I think, like you said, we'll, we'll see a lot of games come down to those little mistakes that'll happen. Uh, but these are professional athletes. And I think by the time halfway through the season hits, we won't see these as often if, if really at all, um, until it's a huge situation and it really matters and then it actually will happen and then we'll have a big debate about it. (laughs) It's usually (laughs) how it goes down. (laughs) It'll be like the world series or something and somebody will not step in the box in time. I I don't know. It'll be goofy, but well, it'll, it'll, it'll be an interesting conversation going forward. Like I said, guys uh, catch on deck probably Tuesday or Wednesday next week. um, as they probably really dive into, you know, spring training off season and these rule changes and get a little bit more in depth on it. But I uh, thank you, Greg, for letting everybody know about what's been going on. Let's go ahead and move on to the blue jackets. Um, disappointing season 32nd. I think that's, that's last. So didn't really do much of the trade deadline. It just kind of seemed like they 
offloaded some guys who weren't really working out, offloaded some money, brought in a few draft picks, brought in a few veteran guys who will be there for a year, um, maybe just to, to help out a little bit. But uh, uh, what did you think about the trade deadline moves with Blue Jackets? I mean, the biggest thing that happened was the Jonathan Quick trades, plural. <laughs> It, it, oh, okay, we're getting Jonathan Quick. Wow, that's like amazing. What, oh, what, he's gone? It, that quick, quickly? Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you know, he's he's a veteran goalie, and, and I, I shocked that they picked him up, but then even more shocked that they traded him right away. Uh, and it just seemed like a, that was a, a kind of collusion in between. Uh, a few teams. Um, obviously, the uh, Kings didn't want to give them uh, to a a uh, what is it? Uh, like a division rival. The division rival. Thanks. Yeah, okay. like, uh, that word could not escape my mouth for some reason. <laughs> uh, they didn't want to give them to a division rival, and so the workaround from everybody was to trade him to Columbus, and then immediately trade him uh, out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, getting rid of. Uh, Garkov and Corpsello, um was, you know, they went to the, the Kings in that trade. Uh, Gus Nyquist and Vorshek, um, they went to the Wild. Um, so, you know, the one thing that kind of happened as far as the, the, the part of the return of the Corpsello, uh trade uh, is that they get two conditional first-round picks in 2023 from the Kings and that they make the playoffs. Um, so, that could be a second rounder in 2024 as well. We didn't expect much. We don't expect much. I, I, I think the off season is what we're going to look to, uh, you know, fill the holes of the roster and um, there'll probably be some way bigger moves this off season than you, than you saw during the, the trade deadline. So I mean, we're last, we're going to be last until the culture changes. We've talked ad nauseum about this, and it's just the culture needs to change in Columbus um, for players to want to play here, want to stay here, and want to win here. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah, they're very much in like player development mode, I think, at this point. I think they, you know, collecting draft picks and young players and, you know, kind of sending some guys out who still can play pretty well, but just weren't working out, uh, you know, with this, with this team because it's so young. And, uh, I think I don't think we're really going to see a playoff hockey team in Columbus maybe for a couple of years. I think we're still probably 3 years out from that cuz I just think they're they're in developmental mode and and I guess unless this offseason if if they go out and they just spend a, a crap ton of money, you know what I mean? Maybe maybe then we get into playoff mode a little bit sooner, but it just depends on the vision that they're going. It, kind of like you said, Greg, I think they're just trying to build a new culture and, and trying to um, grow grow the idea that Columbus can be a free agent destination or a destination for players to want to stay once they um, actually get good. <laughs> so it seems like we develop guys, they get good, and then they uh, they find themselves somewhere else. And that's just uh, – we, we it can't happen. They got to stay here. You know what I mean? This is a – a city that loves its hockey. So um, hopefully they do that. They change the culture and they build it up. And I guess in the off season, if they do spend a bunch of money, then we'll kind of see what that team looks like going forward. But yep. Like I said, collected draft picks, got rid of some players that weren't working out and uh, shedded some, shedded some cap. So I think that's uh 
that's really what their goal was, and I think they accomplished that. So let's go ahead and move on to two teams that are having a little bit more success to start off their season. I think the crew are one one win, one loss right now, and FC Cincinnati is one win, one draw. So um, both of them probably around – I think the FC Cincinnati is a little bit higher up on the table than the crew is right now. But for the crew, you know, they got blown out in their first game. They were able to win against D.C. Uh, United in their second game, uh, 2-0. You know, how do you feel about those first two games? And then what do you think about this game coming up on Saturday against Toronto? I mean, 16th ranked Columbus versus 20 ranked Toronto. Uh, like you said, the one win uh, for Columbus, one loss and both have draws uh it's a three to four goal differential for both teams i mean they've scored three goals and given up four goals over those two games um so goalkeeping seems to be an issue uh, with both teams um early in the season uh i look to columbus to probably pull this off um they just have seem to have a little bit better cohesiveness than toronto does right now uh, so i definitely uh, think columbus will, will move up in that uh, win category come Saturday. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Toronto's right now looking at like the, I think I read their two starting forwards are out with injury uh, for this week. So, you know, Columbus has a little bit of an upper hand in that. Like you said, they're, they're going to have their guys. that are going to be a little bit more cohesive. Um, and it's the beginning of the season. So I think, you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to say they're going to win because it's the Columbus crew, but <laughs> we don't really know how everybody gels and it's the beginning of the season. And there's a lot of young guys on this team, but I do think, I do think they have the ability to win this, you know, and, and, and I think they have the offensive firepower to go in there and, and score some goals. They just got to play some better defense, like you said. And I think they showed that against DC. Um, and, you know, if you, if you put, you know, on paper, the connectiveness, you know, Toronto lost, um, three two to DC, and you know Columbus beat DC two to nothing. So technically, on paper, Columbus should win this game. But Te- technically, yeah, technically. <laughs> but I mean, uh, yeah, on paper doesn't always translate. <laughs> so let's go ahead and move on to FC Cincinnati. Um, definitely never been a huge Cincinnati sports fan, but. You know, I, I have kind of started to grow some love for the game of soccer or football, if you call that, in other countries. Um, so I've been trying to keep up with FC Cincinnati and, and obviously their their success from last season going into this season. So after the first games, win and draw, you know, what are your predictions against kind of Seattle, which I feel like has been one of the teams in the MLS who has had really good success over the past decade. Um, you know, they've been up and down at times, but for the most part, I feel like they've been a team that, that people look at it as one of the better teams within the MLS. So, you know, how do you think they they fare against this team after their past two performances? Uh, I think that Seattle's, uh, you know, winning ability will, will far exceed what Cincinnati is, is putting on the table. I've been a little disappointed in Cincinnati. I actually, you know, paid attention, watched a little bit of the games um, when I could this year, or so far this season, when I know it's only been two games. Um, but Seattle's just a more dominant team. Uh, by far, uh, you know, one win, one draw for Cincinnati at ranked seventh and Seattle's ranked number one. Again, two games in, so there's not much you can say. But what uh, I thought really struck out is the that goal differential, that uh, two to one goal differential for Cincinnati. Um, 
and then Seattle has a six to zero goal differential. And that was the huge thing to me that they're, they're scoring goals and they're not giving up goals. And if that continues uh, throughout the regular season, that trend, uh, Seattle will sit atop the MLS rankings for a decent amount of time. So I'm definitely going with Seattle on this one. Um, Cincinnati just needs to put a little bit more effort in the ball. Um, what I've seen, move it down the field a little bit faster, quicker, and with a little bit more urgency. Uh, I didn't see that a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I just, I, in my notes, I have uh, Seattle looks to be the better team. Uh, quoted <laughs> not that fc cincinnati's not a good team i think they're scrappy i think uh i think they have some good players i i just think that that seattle like i said they've they've been kind of the team for a long time that you know has looked like they're you know they're the team to be within the mls so and i think this year is, is no different you know barring injuries and anything else that happens so I, I i do hope that this is a good game i hope fc cincinnati can pull out the win you know what I mean? I, I think I think that would be huge for their confidence in their season going forward. Like I said, it's the beginning of the season, so we have no idea what goes on really in these first 10 games. They're trying out different lineups, trying different things, um, and they they probably really don't lock in until then. But Seattle has a little bit of, you know, cohesiveness, and, and I think uh, I think they probably already know their identity, so that, that's going to help them in this game. I, I, I just think that's going to be an uphill battle for RFC Cincinnati. So, But we'll see. We'll try to watch them both, but I think they're both on at the same time, and I guess it would just depend on where you're at and what your TV station is going to show. So, <laughs> unfortunately, that's that's like with football or uh, baseball, we kind of just run into that that thing. If you want to watch one of one of the teams, they're both playing at the same time. You know, you can't can't watch both, but um, definitely try to watch some highlights after. So, um, that pretty much does it, guys, for this uh, episode. We're going to move into our. Uh, double take segment and i'll uh i'll go ahead and go first let greg go second i think we'll make that uh switch up going forward just because i think uh greg always has the more fun facts um, i don't know where it's, he it's true i do yeah, i always do uh, i don't i don't know where he looks at i don't know who he pays he might have an assistant over there i'm not quite sure so um but i'll <laughs> i'll go first and uh give my fact i think i'm gonna switch to like uh i think maybe for like a, a month or two I'll do like some uh, some fun Columbus facts and then maybe I'll move into some fun like Cleveland and then Cincinnati facts. I'll do our our, our three C's here um, and, and just try to find some some fun or interesting things um, about each of our cities. But I'll start with Columbus here. I think one fun one that I was that I found was uh, if you guys don't know, like Abraham Lincoln's probably one of my favorite presidents. Um, and I was. I read a fact that uh, he was actually in Ohio at the Capitol building when he found out that he had been elected as president. So I thought that was pretty cool um, when you kind of couple that with as many, I guess, famous people or presidents or whatever that came from Ohio. Obviously, not everybody's been great. I'm not going to say that, but <laughs> um, but I just think that that was like a cool thing uh, that I found out. So, Well, it's, it's funny that you bring up presidents because i'm going to bring up first ladies and no this was not scripted this oh, was wow, not okay. planned out so this was uh, actually what i i looked up so i found it funny did you know that uh ohio is um home to the very first first lady i do not know and i am not actually talking about martha washington oh she was the first wife of the first president, but she was not the first first lady. 
I am talking about Lucy Webb Hayes. Yeah, in addition to being this, uh, the state of the most U.S. presidents, eight in total, uh, are from Ohio, so that's pretty dope. Mm -hmm. uh, Ohio also has the bragging rights of being the nation's first first lady after Chillicothe native Lucy Webb Hayes was called the first lady of the land in a newspaper article about Rutherford B. Hayes in his 1987, or I'm sorry, 1877 inauguration the first lady title was attached to her in subsequent president's wives after. Wow. Well, there you go. That's pretty cool. I can't believe yeah. both went president routes. That's pretty Yeah. Fun. Interesting. Interesting fact. So, <laughs> I was, I was wondering what your look at me was. I was like, I was like, oh, I don't, maybe he hates my fact more than I thought. <laughs> so, so, and, and I, I, I forgot to preface that, but uh, that, you know, it is international or, uh, you know, women's history month, uh, the month mm -hmm. of march so i uh, figured i'd throw some love to the women and uh, give that woman's fact uh at ohio history so pretty cool there you go just more more proof that ohio is is a really cool place um and everybody that hates on it well i don't know what to tell you so we'll just uh we'll keep trying to prove it to you <laughs> But uh, that's pretty much all we had, guys. If you have any comments on what we talked about today, uh, please leave it underneath our posts. Um, definitely appreciative. Uh, we can have that back and forth with you guys. And then if you guys have anything you want to talk about Ohio sports with us and you want to come on and do a topic with us, let us know. You know, message us on social media. Email us at deepdivesports at yahoo.com and uh, let us know. Let us know if you, uh, you, know, you want to come on and, and debate something with us. Maybe you have something that you want to talk about or there's uh, other – sporting news in there um just a quick shout out i think our uh i you know you know that uh dom myself david antonio and uh, evan all went to baldwin wallace up in cleveland and the uh their late their women's basketball team uh gets to go to the uh i think ncaa tournament for division three basketball so they got the the bid for that so that was pretty cool i saw that on social media the other day so shout out to them congratulations um but other than that, this was a, another episode of Ohioverse presented by Deep Dive Sports. I'm Nick, joined by Greg today, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Ohioverse. If you'd like to stay up to date on the show and sporting news in Ohio, go ahead and follow Ohioverse Podcast DDS on Instagram. Also, don't forget to follow deep.dive.sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and listen to any of our shows wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you. And catch you on the next one. Thank you.